Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. Brad Zellinger is the founder and CEO of Stride Autism Centers with nine locations across Nebraska, Iowa, and Illinois. Brad has his bachelor's from the University of Michigan and his MBA from Harvard Business School and spent his early career in both investment banking and private equity where he advised and invested in growth-oriented businesses. Brad serves on the boards of Rett Syndrome Research Trust and Aspiratech and was treasurer of the Illinois Association for Behavior Analysis. Brad, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, I'm excited too, man. I'm I'm just, I'm I'm really pumped about this conversation for a lot of different reasons. But before we get into Stride, um, Brad, tell me how the autism services found you and really importantly, what was the role your sister played in your journey? Yeah, so uh, my sister, uh, Marissa, has a severe autism related disorder. It's actually called Rett syndrome. And she has shaped my life experience meaningfully. Um, She drew me into the developmental disorder world at an early age. And I do have parents as well that are extremely devoted to her and to me. Uh, They're super supportive people and they work tirelessly to provide her with the best possible life uh, that she could have. And that meant supporting nonprofits and service organizations that helped with my sister's programming and things like that. So my parents kind of set this example at an early age to support those types of organizations, which kind of led me to having roles on nonprofits, some of the ones you mentioned, and big a big role in fundraising. We actually have a, a fundraiser out of Chicago uh, where I am I'm based that's raised over $2 million for an organization called Red Center Research Trust, uh, which is um, a fundraiser actually I founded uh, many years ago. So that's, you know, a huge part of who I am is kind of being devoted to that population. Um, Fast forward to, you know, when I'm living in New York City, working in the investment world and just feeling like I had a lot more to give and not feeling like the work I was doing was rewarding and making a difference and a very good timing. I had a friend who recommended I read a book called Autism Matters uh, by Ranit Malko, who founded or was a founder of of an ABA organization. And the book really is a call to action around the massive opportunity to make a difference within ABA and what quality ABA looks like. And I basically read the book in a day and to be honest, you know, was about 95% of the way to committing myself to pursuing something within that area after having read that book. Um, so that's kind of the cliff notes of mm-hmm. uh, my sister and how I got into this space. There's there's so much that I love about your journey and your personal connection. But Brad, what is one thing you would want the world to know about Marissa? Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, She, I think what she has done in her life is she has been the most resilient person. I didn't get into kind of the challenges that she's 
suffers through. Um, but she's nonverbal, you know, she's in her thirties and, um, and has a lot of challenges related to her disorder. And, and she, by the way, she did not receive the ABA. So this is part of why I'm so motivated to bring this to communities that don't have access is because of, I think the huge missed opportunity for her that she did not receive this kind of services, but she is the most resilient human being I've ever seen. Like the fact that she continues to smile and engage with others in her unique way and and really inspire people, not just myself or everything I'm doing right now and, and so much of my life, but so many of my friends and family and people that have worked with her, people that have changed their careers because of interacting with her. Um, so her resilience and her ability to inspire is something that I think is really special. And mm. um, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, that, you know, that it's such a gift. Um, to be able to know someone like that, you know, as we think about being business owners in our field and like how we're in the weeds every day of the stuff we have to do, it's really easy, I think, for organizations to lose sight of the fact that we're we're affecting like, human beings' lives. And these are individuals. These are not numbers on spreadsheets. These are not just, oh, someone with autism or someone with rats. These are human beings. So like I see you and I honor you and Marissa uh, and your parents and family on your journey, dude. That, that's, a, that's an awesome journey, man. Thank you. Like Brad, you're um, there are like six thousand ABA providers out there, right? Tell me, how was Stride Autism Centers like different? That number honestly sounds fake because it's <laughs> so big. Um, I think it kind of stems from what we were touching upon just now. Is I think um, the rationale behind why I founded Stride and it's stemming so much from my own personal experience and how deeply rooted yeah, my experience is to the population we serve. I think that is actually our most unique attribute. I don't know, there are other founders out there in that 6,000, I'm sure that are similar to me, but I do think my story is a little different. And I think that that is deeply woven into the fabric of what we do and how our people, our staff um, know how to prioritize you know, know the right decision to make. What is our North Star? It's our clients and their success. And in addition, you know, I look around and I see a lot, and I'm not, I came from private equity, but I see a lot of private equity firms out there. I see a lot of even clinician owned businesses that I don't think can really be as committed to what we do because of external forces. And I've self-funded Stride. Um, which I'm really proud of. And I don't report to anyone. I mean, there are pros and cons to that, but I think one of the pros is I get to decide what an appropriate margin is. I get to make decisions that don't necessarily um, follow the most profit-oriented decision, right? I get to basically make decisions that are in service of our mission and I feel good about them and no one else needs to you know, sign off on them. So I think that what does that mean? I mean, it's, it means that, you know, we in general are not cutting RBT hours when clients don't show up, you know, where we've paid people um, when they've gotten COVID, we're not requiring, you know, full pay, you know, and, and not requiring them to dip into their P PTO. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time and energy on really developing our staff, probably more so than other organizations of our size. Um, 
and and also actually doing training that drives people into into uh, into uh, overtime. You know, like we actually really deeply care about this kind of stuff, and um, I think people realize that, and I think it attracts a unique type of person, and and ideally retains them. Of course, everyone has retention and turnover problems, um, and challenges, but uh, I think I think that's all those things kind of make us a bit unique. Mm. Yeah, you know, I and and having been on your website. You know, a lot of ABA providers' websites can look similar. One of the things I really appreciate, you had like eight or 10 bullet points that were like posing these like really specific questions about how you all were different and you answered them. And so like that, the personal connection and your sister is part of that. So like that totally comes across. And one of those differentiators was your close connections with academic institutions. Um, and that is phenomenally, I feel like it's phenomenally important when it comes to attracting world-class talent. And just piling on and doing all those great things you're doing staff development and training and, and otherwise tell me more what do those partnerships with academic institutions look like and what have you learned from engaging with higher ed yeah so there's some history there so my family you know again has been touched by this right from you know for decades and and we're not a, a family that kind of sits and watches and waits for other people to mobilize and, and improve you know the circumstances so we've, we've actually been funding research and scholarships at the university of illinois which is where everyone but me and my family went uh, to school so everyone hates me for for going a different direction but um they all went there and they have a really excellent uh school of education and so they've been funding this for over 20 years now and one of their endowments um involves an annual lecture series from an expert in the field of communication disorders. So our staff has been, you know, we don't have a 20 year history, of course, so they haven't been at every lecture, but they go to like, you know, are able to listen to these lectures from world-class people on, on topics that are really interesting. So they're learning from that. And in addition, the, actually the chair of the department, Dr. Kuklanski is one of our advisors and she has met with our team. She actually specializes in parent training. so. She, much of her research she has a lot of grants in the research area of parent training and so her work has helped us develop our own parent training model that makes use of the best sort of research that's out there um so those are a couple examples but really i leveraging frankly my family's connection to that university and and their great people hmm. it's interesting to see how like that personal connection truly is the differentiator that you described it almost permeates like all these different aspects of your organization including like wow getting to learn from a dr Wolanski and like knowing the latest research around parent training that's powerful dude and i and like you know i, I think there's this this idea out there this like entrepreneurial myth that it's like all just like roses and rainbows right because we get to be our own like bosses um while at the same time, like we're going to be our own hardest critics, right? <laughs> and so it's like that's a double-edged good, double-edged but uh, double-edged sword. Like, what have been like the highest highs and lowest lows of your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, um, it's been an incredible roller coaster. <laughs> so there's so much volatility that, to be honest, it's hard to pick like a high, a single like optima, um, and and a low. Here, it's it's just because there is honestly, it's very day to day for me, at least I don't know about you, but um, the trend line is up, but there's just a lot of, 
you know, craziness that kind of happens. <laughs> and I think, you know, for the highs, for me, it's the kind of stuff, um, you know, that really, the kind of stuff that really brings me joy is it are the moments where I played a role in making something happen that feels really special. Like there's a family in a small town and we were in Iowa, our biggest service area is in Iowa. So rural state, you know, there's a family in a rural area that couldn't get their diagnostic documentation to us. And I like personally drove to their home and picked it up and like that child's in therapy and started relatively recently. And that's something that I think that kind of level of service is something I don't necessarily know other places would do. Um, there was another family that didn't have the proper Medicaid plan that covered ABA. There's actually one plan, you know, in that state that just doesn't cover it for whatever reason. We provided them the resources to be able to get the right insurance in place and get them into therapy. Um, there's a family that was moving from Texas to Iowa and did not yet have a diagnosis. And I was like, well, when you come here, the wait lists are really long. So, you know, you should really look into doing that locally before you come here. So when you come, you can seamlessly come into our program. I actually did a little research to try to find them a local developmental pediatrician and that child's in our program. Things like that make me feel really good. And so do the reviews that our clients give that are unsolicited and really, to be honest, can bring me to tears how amazing they are. Um, that's the kind of stuff that really um, gets me going. And the lows, the low period for me, um, last summer, so I, as I mentioned, I kind of I bootstrap, right? So that involved me learning to do everything and then actually doing it without hiring people. And that meant that I endured a lot of pain as we were growing from, you know, nothing to nine centers, but you know, really didn't have the corporate infrastructure to manage intakes and billing and credentialing and real estate and build outs and furniture, all the things that you know that goes into center-based and just ABA services in general, recruiting, I mean, just back to back to back interviews constantly. And my days got stretched and, you know, 100 hour type weeks, which I had done before in my career, uh, earlier in my career, but I was in a low place. I was just a shell of a human. And I vowed to never, ever, ever, ever go through something like that because it, was, it wasn't it was good for stride. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for the people that I love and I'm closest to. It's a lot of sacrifice. I would just say that stretch, which I'm out of now, I still maybe work a little bit more than I like, but um, that stretch was a, a, was a low point in my life, despite all the great things that we were doing as a company. Mm. For listeners, bootstrap means you, just, you did not accept outside funding. You you funded it you know, for yourself or like for Ascend, we, we, we uh, same thing, bootstrapped. We like to say we were funded by friends, family, and fools, right? And the SBA, Small Business <laughs> Administration. But like that, it, it, it feels like that probably gave you this, um, as hard as last summer was, this really profound, deep understanding of your business and um, like what high quality services means and my guess is like that was there was a there was learning that came there was a lot of learning that came from it so I, i'm grateful for that and i there, there that saying no pain no gain is like a legit <laughs> and so is the notion of sweat equity i mean 
there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into effectively what was you know equity in the in the company because I wouldn't sell you know to to another organization to fund me. Um, and I I think it also allowed me to know what to look for in the corporate team. So I do think we have a plus people. Fine, you know, finally, and we've just gave an offer out to someone else to round out the team yesterday. So I hope she accepts. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, fingers crossed, but I think it has allowed us to, um, bet, you know, assess good people who can get things done and can work, can work well as a team. So mm. I think there were definitely benefits of that pain. <laughs> and let me tell you, like, so for listeners out there who, hey, Brad, you made this mention of uh, a reference to hundred hours a week, like coming from the investment banking world, that's just like par for the course. So I like, I, I, I literally and physically believe you, you're spending hundred, a hundred hours a week, like, you know, pouring your blood, sweat, tears and everything else into it. And you know, it's funny. It's like coming out of university of Virginia, gosh, 22, three, four years ago. Um, I, I had to decide whether I want to go the management consulting or investment banking route. And I'll never forget, we had UVA did a great job of bringing different, you know, the JP Morgan's, Goldman Sachs and others onto campus. We would have these like cocktail parties and, um, you know, they try to recruit us. And I'll never forget talking to one of the like New York analysts. And I asked him, what's it like to work a hundred hour week? And he said, you know, it's actually, it's not too bad. You basically get a little bit less couch time. <laughs> and I was like, and my like bs meter kind of went off and i was like okay like that's not the route for me yeah that's a lot no that that was another time where i probably was depressed but undiagnosed um yeah no i i think there are times in one's life especially when you don't have talk about not anyone to report to i mean i i founded strike without um didn't have a, a life partner, you know, kids, limited responsibility other than to myself and, and of course my family, but, and the nonprofit work I do, but I, I was legitimately able to devote my full energy to it in a way that is unique. I mean, when you have all those other responsibilities in a family, you can't, I mean, you can't work that much. I think you can probably in a more efficient and intelligent way build an organization like stride but i am not that efficient and intelligent so i had to brute force it and i'm glad i did it when i didn't have other things like that in my life and i was just able to devote myself to it but i think that does lead to burnout like it just does and so you got to be really thoughtful about that and you know i've learned that i've learned that the hard way i guess building building a successful organization that's having a meaningful impact on our world is a marathon, right? It is like, you can't just sprint through it. Well said, man. Well, Brad, you and I share something else in common um, in knowing Dr. Linda LeBlanc. So I knew Dr. LeBlanc through, because um, uh, she was the founding chief clinical officer at Trauma Behavioral Health. So we got to work really closely together. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I know you've worked with Dr. LeBlanc. And by the way, I just consider Linda, like a god amongst mortals in our field. What, what, what did you learn working with Linda? I, you know, as I was getting started, I was doing a lot of research on what what do I want to build within ABA? What's that going to look like? And I went to a lot, found myself at a lot of conferences, one of which was, I was based out of Chicago, I went to the Wisconsin ABA conference where Linda spoke. And actually that's where I 
came up to her and somehow, I don't know how, convinced her to uh, you know, work with me. Um, she is, I got amongst morals. She's, um, so everyone kind of knows her for her um, thought leadership, obviously within the field of ABA and she is, and that, and, and that has definitely helped stride. But really for me, her role has evolved into kind of like this executive coaching role for me. So I meet with her a lot weekly and well, almost weekly and get the opportunity to have this amazing sounding board for myself and the company, but for myself in terms of, I'm a, I'm a first time CEO, I'm a first time leader of this magnitude. And I, as much as I may look like I know what I'm doing, I, do, I really don't. And so having someone who is as wise as her, who has seen a lot of success and failure and is just really sharp has just helped me navigate the challenges that I face on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think has helped me become a better leader. And I'm just really grateful that I've had the opportunity to have her guidance and support. And it's been a really helpful uh, aspect of, um, of, of my building stride is just having that kind of coaching. Um, in addition to, of course, like what she is known for, her I, I I could not agree more. Like clearly, she's a thought leader. Has extraordinary research that she's published, but she's an amazing like coach first and foremost. I in my eyes as well, um, as she coached me. But is it, like it, being a great coach is more than just always having the right answers, which Linda does. But it's about asking really good questions, right? And like deep questions, which serve as like that gut check. Oh, am I doing this right? And like just in asking those questions, I've always felt like she or any really good executive coach, that's where they shine. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And and asking the questions that you're, yeah, you're not asking yourself that are hard, difficult things that you might want to avoid or you just didn't see and help helps you ultimately get to a better answer. Yeah. So one of the things, Brad, as I, you know, in, in looking at your, your website, um, one of the things I really appreciated was this statement. I'm going to read it. Stride has an unwavering commitment to meaningful outcomes. Um, like how do you think about outcomes and what specific measures do you use? Yeah. Um, so I think what's interesting is that we do have an unwavering commitment to meaningful outcomes. Yet, if I'm honest, we're not doing a great job of actually measuring them. Um, that is something that I think we need to work on doing more in a systematic way. And probably all ABA providers, right, need to do a better job of, of actually measuring it. But I will say we are committed. And as part of that commitment, we commit to measuring it better over time. Um, there's a ton of underutilized data, I think, that we're sitting on that we need to do a better job of, of harnessing. Um, you know, of course, we do a variety of, of assessments for each client, uh, pre-treatment and then on a regular cadence, you know, throughout treatment, but there's more we can do there. I mean, in terms of how we think about it, I think the word meaningful is there for a reason. Like that wasn't just like a word we threw in, like that was a carefully selected word and it is meant to be meaningful for the child and family. Like what we're trying to do, it depends a lot on the individual and it's meant to be 
related to their current skill sets and demands of the environments that they're in and will be in. And we want to drive outcomes, you know, that are meaningful to them, right? And I've, I kind of said the same thing a couple of times, but I, I think there's a nuance there that I'm trying to get across. And hopefully it's coming across. And then ultimately in my mind, I would love to be in a position where the clients that we're serving now, and most of them are, are relatively young children, look back on their time at Stride, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 plus, and are just like, wow, I'm glad that I went through that. And like that, I have meaningful outcome, right? I, I'm better, I am, have more skills, or I have a fuller, more independent life because of this, or in part of that. And that's ultimately the lens that I, I see that kind of outcomes uh, notion through. Mm -hmm. Th that word meaningful, it, like I want to pinpoint here because my sense is, it, so that makes so much sense to me. My sense is, you know, in, in having a sister in Marissa, right? Like that's where you can tie it back to the human being. Um, and it, it's nuanced, but like critically important. And I'll never forget, like my hardest lesson in this was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago when I got into the field and um, I, I'll never forget meeting with a mom where we had this goal, like in the treatment plan to be able to say the word mango. And she's like, Jonathan, I don't give a shit if he can say mango. I want him to stop engaging in self injurious behavior. And what it taught me is like, A, let's really listen, actively listen. <laughs> To, to you know to parents um and make sure we're developing treatment plans um that uh you know that 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 will be impactful to them and then b let's go work as hard as we can against those and make sure we're um we're like walking hand in hand with parents along that treatment journey so yeah. that we don't stray off and are creating mango goals <laughs> instead yeah. of others. mango goals that's a huge failure of that child's learning history and and, and squandered precious time a mango goal, right? Yeah. So it's a good, good thing to I'll, I'll, I won't forget the, <laughs> a mango goal because it is, it's just, it's, it's not a good use of people's time and it's, it is precious time and you have to be more thoughtful and individualized around it. And I think mm -hmm. that's how we look at it. And again, I think over time, we'll, as we have more resources at our disposal, we'll spend more time, you know, really focused on, on quantifying it and measuring mm -hmm. systematically. That's right. Let's not try and shape parents into being compliant. Let's build true therapeutic relationships and partnerships with them. That feels like it makes sense. Yeah. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. Element's your partner. So you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Element's a preferred partner of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you. They know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system and Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. You know, Greg, 
coming back to you, hundred hour. I, I can't get this like notion of hundred hour weeks out of my mind, man. But like, I have always like, the handful of times you and I have gotten to meet, connected through, you know, introduced through Linda, of course. Like, I, I just, I, I, I just, I've informally referred to you as the hardest working man in show business because you have been seriously like a. I mean, you. you That's like not an word I want to have. It's just. Right. Like... <laughs> but like. I mean, clearly you've learned from that, right? And you're like, you're building out your team. But, you know, this is something most ABA practices struggle with. Like, when is the right time to hire someone, right? Or bring on the next person or invest in a system, whatever it is. But, like, what's been the, the single biggest point of leverage for you that's helped you, you operate at the highest and best yeah. use of your leadership as a CEO and owner? I think I'll get to answer, but I think, like, me transitioning from hundred hour a week, Brad, who's an, really an individual contributor that just executes and get thing, gets things done for other people to a leader that, you know, orchestrates all the mission and growth and, and, and everything that Stride is, has been the hardest like transition, I think, for me, like within my life, I guess, because there are two very different kind of ways of, of operating. And I think finding great people that I can work alongside that work well with me and each other that can basically be that support team that Stride needs, like that, that was my hardest thing I think I've had to do. Every, everything else has been, for me at least, like relatively easy. And, and just being able to share that responsibility of running Stride to help us realize our vision better. Um, and that's a work in process, but that has come a long, long way from, you know, my low point, which is really, I think the peak of the, the peak of the low point was not having any of that in place and having like all the growth and things that were going on. So the biggest like leverage point to your question is, is the team, the corporate team effectively, which includes clinical directors that help manage and oversee support our BCBAs, um, having all that in place it's it's and it's it's evolving and we're getting better and we're iterating but that has been we've made a lot of strides no pun intended on uh on that and that's um the area that i, I want to continue to to focus on for myself and strive hmm. and that's a pure selfless act i mean ultimately it, it pays off building like a team around you but that's almost like a selfless act as an entrepreneur and a leader is to welcome others into, hey, share my vision um, with me. And that's a powerful thing. I, I, I think you're exactly right. Like, I feel the same way. That was both the hardest and maybe like one of the most reinforcing parts of starting, growing an organization, especially in the ability to like coach others, right? And, and, and bring them along. Well, you know, you have like these um, so many like just really neat insights into the field and into how to like grow a great business and build a great business given, I mean, certainly your past experience, but also you got, um, you know, your MBA and, and many ABA practice owners, you know, have a master's in, um, in ABA or special ed or something else or related discipline. They don't have their MBA, but like, how did you decide to get your MBA? Yeah. Um, to me, it was a unique, once in a lifetime opportunity to learn from people that were way smarter than me um, from all over the globe 
you know, with really diverse skill sets and perspectives and to be just like slashing around in the mix with those types of people that I could really absorb unique insights from and relationships and things like that. I didn't, couldn't think of another place where I could do that in a really free, you know, open, not free, uh, actually, <laughs> in a, you know, in an open, supportive environment where you don't have the distraction of a full-time job and other things going on, right? So that was the biggest thing that kind of drew me into the idea of going. And then it, we talked about the hard work, the 100-hour weeks. Like, I was on a treadmill that was just, mm -hmm. you know, nonstop for, like, right out of undergrad, straight into these, like, programs that just kind of drill you to the ground. And I felt like if I could take a break again, and in a way that like the world looks at it as like, okay, you're, you're going to business school. It's just like an okay thing to go do. It's not like I, you know, left the country to just go do nothing for years, right? Like you're allowed to go do this and no one looks really down on you for it. So I was like, well, if I can take a break and slow down, introspect, meet people, and set the stage for the next phase of my career and also kind of maybe hone in on what I want to do next, which by the way, none of those presumptions came true because I <laughs> took a weird path and, uh, you know, or, or a really different path than I anticipated, but that that break would be good for me. And so the kinds of people and the idea of a break, I think for me were really what compelled me ultimately to go. Mm like HBS Harvard Business School is I mean it, it's it, if you know FIT is to a, a master's in ABA what HBS is to an MBA right it, it's just like creme de la creme and in fact you know who inspired me in part like to go back and get my executive MBA I don't know if you ever had a professor Thomas DeLong yeah Harvard. yeah yeah so in the early 2000s i kid you not brad i had like a two day i was in boston for i don't even know what at this point but i had a two-day like learning workshop and he was the facilitator for it and he ran through this case study that i will never ever forget in my entire life but and it came down to you have the highest performer of highest performers at this bank but was not culturally or values aligned what do you do and I remember being like, well, I don't know, he's a high performer, so like make it happen. And I tried to make a convincing case and he like, he beat me up in a very nice way, but it's like, no, values alignment is everything. And I was like, oh, you are unbelievable. And that inspired me to go back. That's, that's so interesting. It's interesting for a few reasons. One is because he gave me my worst grade while at HBS down the line. Oh man. <laughs> well, that's, that's really funny. But also he, he facilitated this, um, consult there's a, this really unique aspect of of HBS where you get to go to a different country to do basically a consulting engagement. You can pick anywhere in the world pretty much where you can go. And me wanting to stay within the same time zone and et cetera, I went to Mexico City. And I, by the way, I love, I've been to Mexico City a few times. It's an incredible place. And um, he facilitated that trip. So he was there and uh, yes, he does have that really well-known case. And um, yeah, well, now on a podcast, everyone knows I got my worst grade from him. <laughs> there you go. 
Hey, the good news is like no one looks at your grades from your MBA program. So that, that's why I always used to tell myself and like my 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 group members <laughs> in my MBA, no one's going to look at our grades. It's a safe space. It's a safe space. Right. Safe space for learning. Right. And that's how learning should be. No, I agree. Totally. I, what are like one or two of the most critical lessons you learned in your MBA that you brought to stride? Yeah, I think so. We actually... I didn't expect you to bring up this, but like the, the cases. So the it's, as far as I know, it's the only program um, at HBS, the only program that exclusively does something called a case method, which is instead of having like a didactic, you know, training from a professor, like going through PowerPoint and you learn that way, um, there's actually zero of that. It's all these cases, which are basically these scenarios within business or in leadership and tough moral situations, all these kind of gray area things where there literally are a million different ways you can, maybe not a million, but many different good answers ultimately that you could back up with data and logic of like the direction you can go. And then you're in this room with, again, like 90 people that are way smarter than you that talk about their perspective on it and you have this kind of interesting discussion around what to do and why and i find so much of my day-to-day -day in stride is in this kind of murky gray area of like there are many good decisions and you don't know which one is the best one and which way do you go so i got actually in school like a lot of practice kind of making tough decisions with limited information you know, where there are many right answers. And I think that helped a lot, just like the reps I got on that has helped a lot in thinking through tough situations. Um, and then they do, they also do this like cold calling thing where basically um, you gotta know where you're just asked, you know, a difficult question within the context of these cases. And I think being able to also get some reps on quickly coming up with a cogent thought on something you have no idea about, or maybe you didn't read the case the night before, or you, <laughs> or you skimmed it and, and being able to do that in a way that makes sense that, um, that has been helpful. I think just because there's so many things in building stride. I mean, again, first time CEO, first time really building a healthcare organization as well. There's a lot of things I encounter actually pretty much daily that I haven't encountered before and you need to think on your feet. And I think the cold calling thing kind of gets you ready for that as well. So there's kind of those two main themes I think have helped me. Yeah, I, I, I think you describe what it's like being a founder and CEO, right? You are never going to have perfect information. And I love this idea that you just get, have to get reps, right? On like all, a whole bunch of data coming your way. Some of it like critically important. Some of it, are, it's red herring, right? You've got to wade through it and figure out a framework you'll use to make decisions you know i also I clearly you're a sharp dude man and i appreciate how much humility you have but like do you feel like you can be in any room in the world now having gone through like that experience i mean i and i just never um, been in like a starstruck kind of person in general, like, I just don't, you know, I like to get along with everyone. And I just, I don't, 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I don't really care a ton about what people think. <laughs> so yeah, my parents, this is really sad. My parents follow me on Instagram and I just like posted a story the other day. And my mom was like, that makes you look bad. I'm like, well, I don't really care. Mom, like, I don't, you know. And by the way, why are you following me? And yeah, I think the reality is I just don't really care a ton about that. So I, I don't know if I've answered your question right, but yeah, in general, I, I, I do. That doesn't mean that I can hang necessarily with the most, you know, the smartest people on the planet and have a perspective on anything. But um, I think not caring so much what people think has helped me just do things that the way that seems right to me and just not have a lot of second guessing about mm. my approach to life. And yeah, maybe that does help go into any room and things like that. Cause you're just not worried what people are thinking. That's like Confucian wisdom, man. I love it. <laughs> but, like what, what's one thing, Brad, that like every ABA owner should start doing and one thing they should stop doing. Yeah. Um, I, this too, maybe like the outcomes thing is just really individualized. I don't know like what people are doing or not doing, but, um, maybe I'll think just, uh, because this happened recently, I had kind of an important, per really important person on my team, chief of staff quit unexpectedly, kind of out of nowhere. Um, actually someone that I think you would just like maybe over email or something, someone, someone who you'd connected with Jonathan and, uh, First of all, that stunk. Uh, but you know what actually it, it forced me to do is actually get back into doing intake. Um, so I'm like back on the mm. actually training now someone new in that area for us. Um, and I th connecting with families in that way, per being able to be that first touch point where you can provide hope and reassurance and help them access what we do has really brought me back. Like it had been so long since I had done that. Mm. And so I doesn't have this incredibly long operating history, but it had been a while and it felt like it had been a while since I had done that because I had really handed that off to this person who, who then quit. Right. So jumping back into that and being able to connect that way, I think has been really healthy and, and again, brought us me back to like why we do what we do. Mm. And also you hear more of the concerns and the questions. And I think that helps with the business building. So maybe just like getting closer to the clients and patients, you know, you can be, if you're just in your ivory tower and you're not really out there and connecting in that way, you can lose touch. So that has, that was really nice actually silver lining. I'm always looking for silver lining. That was a good silver lining with that uh, exit of that uh, team member. And then in terms of, um, in terms of stop doing, um, I so this is just kind of a story. Actually, it's kind of interesting. So when I was, I did a lot of research up front in terms of when I was building Stride and what am I going to do? What is this going to look like? And I honed in on Iowa, you know, uh, as a state where we wanted to at least get started. And you know, it's adjacent to Illinois. It's not that far for me to get to. It had a need and I reached out to the largest organization that was providing ABA services there to request just a conversation and had a conversation with someone who basically discouraged me the entire time to start stride. And, and I reflect back on that from time to time. So I'm like, if I had listened to this person, we would have had the 
biggest missed opportunity, my biggest missed opportunity to make a difference in the world, which is really sad. Um, and so I think stop, if there are business owners out there that take that approach of discouraging people from like people who have that, there's like that product market fit or whatever they say in VC land about founders. I feel like I sort of have that with my story and things like that. Like don't discourage people from doing that um, and try to lend a hand. And I think this podcast in particular is a good way to, you know, disseminate best practices and knowledge. It's actually the opposite of that, which is really great. And I think people should be doing more of this and more talking and, and, and rubbing shoulders and, and helping each other out. Um, so stop discouraging people, I think, is the one thing. If that's going on, that would be a thing that I would really suggest they not do. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I'll be honest, that like that fucking pisses me off. <laughs> and I want to like, I want to point no further than the one in 44 statistic of kids who get diagnosed with autism from the CDC that just got updated in December. And like to think we will never have enough providers of highest quality services. And I couldn't agree more. We need to be collaborative as a field to figure out how we get family services in whatever way we can. And let's forget the X's and O's of who like who does what and whose ego is on the line. So thank you for bringing that up, Brad. I appreciate that. Well, throw a question at me, man, like anything, make me answer on the spot. I, so I know that you actually run two businesses and anyone that runs two businesses, I'm always like, like the Elon Musk runs all these businesses and Jack Dorsey runs all these businesses. I'm like, how do people do, I can barely do one and stay afloat. So how do you do that? How do you split your time? How do you know how to prioritize things? And how do you just, how do you do that? It's very impressive that you're able to manage two businesses. Hmm. Well, Brad, I, for, I have to say, I think it's a family, first, by the way, too. And, and everything. <laughs> right, yeah, three kids and an amazing wife, Kim. Uh, that's the first time in time I've ever heard my name in a sentence with like Jack Dorsey. Or but Elon yeah, Musk. warranted. Warranted. <laughs> like, warranted. I, <laughs> I want to be clear that like I am nowhere, anywhere close to that kind of orbit. Uh, but your, your question is a great one. You know, it comes down to two things um, very simply. One, I was super fortunate. Uh, actually with Ascend to have two co-founders, um, one of whom, you know, stayed with the organization. I'm still close to this day, but the other of whom, Will Bainig, um, uh, you know, he and I have like been attached at the hip for four and a half years. I like to say like, I, I see sometimes like more of Will or talk to him more than I talk to Kim, <laughs> like in the average week. And so having a partner to bounce things off of, to like, to gut check, you kind of like the executive coach role that, you know, Linda played for, for you. Um, and, uh, to call my BS. Right, like let's let the best ideas win. There's no like pride of of authorship or ownership. Um, that's been really important, and that has led to sort of where we are now. Where I, I I'd say I spent you know vast majority of my time on Element RCM, and um, he's spending most of his time on uh, on Ascend. Um, and then clearly, there's a lot we do across organizations. Um, the second thing is that again comes back to something you described, is like put the right team values aligned leadership team um in place in the right seats on the bus and then provide all the coaching and help and support that you can that's that and then like and, and that's part of where i get my passion in life is like coaching others to them you know live their best uh, professional and personal in other lives so 
I don't know if those are the right answers, but those no, are the right that, answers. No, that makes sense. And I think like the team as building the team is something I appreciate more now than I ever have is just how important that is. And if you have a great team, you, you, you know, you're able to balance and do other things, which is, uh, it's important. Exactly. And oh, by the way, it gives you like a work community. And I think that's what so many of us strive for these days. We want to feel like we have belonging and meaning and we can connect with other like-minded values, minded people. So Brad, where can, uh, where can people find you and stride online and on social media? Yeah. Um, don't have this enormous presence, but, um, you can find us on stridecenters.com and that's, that's our website. And we do have an Instagram account, uh, that's posted to occasionally, which is, you know, at sign stride centers. Um, we have a Facebook as well, but I don't actually know. You probably just have to search Stride Autism Centers. Um, so those are, that's kind of where we, where we are online. Oh, we made a TikTok actually. Oh, no way. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, everyone else is doing it. So right. uh, uh, figured Stride could too. I think we have one post on it. So feel free to take a look at our TikTok. That's awesome. That is brave of you. And oh, by the way, when we think about RBTs, where are they online these days? No, hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, that's why we, we created it. If you, if anyone goes there and sees, you'll see, you'll see what we posted and you'll, you'll see it's, it's actually very geared towards RBTs. Nice man. All right. So you ready for hot take questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So Brad, you're on your deathbed. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? Just making a difference in the world. No one will care about pretty much anything else. I think that's the one thing that um, you want to feel good about in the end is is making it a difference and leaving an impact, a positive one. Heck yes. What's your most important self-care practice? I love playing squash. Um, I grew up in Chicago and thought it was just a vegetable until I went to college and some guy who grew up went to a boarding school like taught me how to play and i just got absolutely hooked and that's like the one thing that brings me a ton of joy just that physical exercise and meeting people and all that i've, I've really loved playing squash oh, joy and exhaustion can i tell you brad the two years i lived in chicago i had this roommate phenomenal dude mike schreiber and he and i played racquetball all the time and like i would be sobbing wet with sweat it was so fun and squash is like 10x harder than racquetball. Is that a fair character? I've never played squash. It, I think fair? I do like to optimize for certain things and like calorie per minute is sometimes <laughs> one of them. And it apparently, I think squash and swimming are the two sports or physical activities that have like the highest calorie per minute counts. You are, you're just like enclosed in a small space and there's tons of small sprints and yeah, you do get drenched and it's very, surprisingly quite physical so <laughs> and the ball's not bouncy finesse and power and all that i mean i'm not a pro i'm totally an amateur you know because i picked it up you know in undergrad but you know i do my best and i enjoy it a lot uh, we're gonna have to have a separate session on uh, on squash racquetball um if you could cancel all meetings uh, and skip all your responsibilities for a day how would you spend the day well, unlike you, you live in like a really nice 
like weather slash state area, but mine is very weather dependent because I'm in Chicago. And so it's like so hit or miss. So it'd be a little dependent on that, but optimistically, if the weather was good, um, just hosting a barbecue with friends, mm. and something chill. Um, I love doing that. I don't do it enough. Um, I would love to do that and just gather, gather a good group of people and hang out. It's awesome, man. I, I love barbecuing as well. And it sounds like you're of the mindset too. Like it's not the quantity of people, it's the quality of people that show up for it. Oh yeah. Uh, what's the best song ever? Um, I, I kind of, I've been into the, some remixes type stuff of Kygo. I don't know if you've heard of Kygo. Oh, hell yes. Like <laughs> hell yes. There's, I think it's relatively new, the higher love, which is a Whitney Houston song, but he has a remix with that. And I, been that's been on repeat uh for a while. i tend to like repeat the song legitimately like until i hate it and i'm that's the one that's currently getting beat up right now is is higher love so it has a little bit more life left to it before i hate it but <laughs> before you run it into the ground that's the oh, one that's right now oh that's amazing man and whitney houston akai goes amazing and whitney houston one of the all-time greats oh that brings me back um well, Brad, if you could give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Be less risk-averse, I think. I I was um, in life until stride, pretty much, if I'm honest. Like, it was very risk-averse. So I took kind of the path that, um, I don't know, just like the structured path that society kind of tells you to do when you have certain grades or whatever. And um, I wish I had earlier on decided to do something more independent and entrepreneurial because I felt like I, I spent, I did learn a lot in those kind of structured roles, but I didn't feel like I made a difference. And I just feel like I helped enrich people that didn't need enriching. And um, I could have, done more interesting things earlier on and also by the way even if i had done those things would have looked at life and learning and school in that lens of like i want to learn the skills that are going to help me prosper and build great organizations when i when i ultimately do become entrepreneurial and i i, I really didn't feel that way until all of a sudden i just kind of decided to do it mm. so i wish i had that mindset earlier on i think that would help me be a better leader today and have the skills, but more skills in that, you know, that I need day to day right now. You can only wear one style of footwear for the rest of your life. What would it be? Crocs. Yes. <laughs> I the took, old man sandals. I took, uh, I took so much heat, especially in college. My college roommates were so aggressively rude about my croc wearing. And but I think it, people hated on it for a while, but it's actually kind of coming back now. I'm hearing like Crocs is kind of becoming a hot new shoe again, but it is the most comfortable shoe of all time. And and actually that harkens back to like, I don't care what people think. I just yeah. wore it. <laughs> hated me, but I was like, I love these Crocs. Dude, all function, right? No fashion, but all function. Yeah. I've had my pair for 14 plus years and are still kicking. As it's the most durable shoe of all time. Mm -hmm. or like foot container it's not really a shoe. 
foot container. Yes, I'm going to start on my Crocs, my foot containers. That's amazing, man. Hey, Brad, this has been uh, just phenomenal. Thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom. Oh, it's great uh, chatting with you. I had fun. I, I hope we can do this more often. I just enjoyed the discussion. Right on. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.